I told you guys at the beginning of our service or in the middle of our service that through the, the fasting that I have done this week, um, there came a point on Thursday where I had been praying and asking God what and how and where and what his plan was and what his purposes were, that it was almost as if he just popped an image in my head. There wasn't a plan. It was just a graphic. It was just an image. Now, before I give you that image, actually, let me, yeah, let me tell you the image and then, then we'll, no, let me, let me do it this way. Um, go to, in the hymnal, if you've got a hymnal ready and available to you. Oh, I love how they do this. Okay, on... (laughs) There it is. Hymn number 756, towards the back of the book. 756. There's a song that is known as the Battle Hymn of the Republic... It's also in our hymnal, it's identified as mine eyes have seen the glory. Um, But look at verse two. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar, even the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. So often people think of this as a song to sing on on the 4th of July or Memorial Day, but the words of this song are honoring to God, and especially verse 2. And... The reason this particular verse means so much to me is when I was a child, we, my dad was stationed at the Naval Hospital in in Philadelphia. And on some random weekend, my father and mother took all of us kids, and at that time I think there was five of us. There were a total of seven kids eventually, but I think at that time in our life it was just five of us, or four of us. And we went to Gettysburg. And in the uh, area of Gettysburg, and I don't remember exactly what it was or where it was, because I was just a little kid, but there was this diorama, it was like a, like a, a, a physical representation of the Battle of Gettysburg, and it, and it was also the, it was a, uh, for the 1960s, it was an audiovisual, uh, multimedia presentation, which means they dim the lights. But what they did was, at some point, while the person who was the docent was narrating what was going on and what we were observing, they dimmed the lights in the room and were looking at the diorama and all of the little campfires that the the, the soldiers were gathered around became illuminated. And so, imagine if you will, you're looking out at this darkened field and all you see are these little fires dispersed all around this darkened field with people gathered around the fires and their their faces are being illuminated and as the words of the battle hymn says I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps 
They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and depths. Um, I can read his righteous sent word by the dim and fading lamps. His truth is marching on. And the image God put in my mind was of that darkened diorama with all of those little campfires illuminated with people gathered around them. And then the words of this hymn. That's what God downloaded to me on Thursday. And I was like, is that for me or is that for the congregation? And so I then spent time meditating and chewing on and praying, God, is this for the congregation? I became more and more convinced that I was to share it with you. And I was like, well, what does that have to do with our church? And Lord, I have already determined with your help that I wanted to preach the next number of sermons by looking at characters in the Bible. What in the world am I going to do with this? How can I find a Bible character that's gathered around a campfire looking at your word? And I truly was just prayerfully trying to discern what I needed to say to you. And God led me to one of the seven deacons in the books of, in the book of Acts. And so I, I didn't read the scriptures to the kids because they, they couldn't have understood or would, wouldn't have really even cared. But if you turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 6, the very first few verses, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, that's key, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because of their widows and being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So someone who has a good reputation. Someone who is full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will then appoint to this duty. So there were three standards. Someone who has a good reputation, someone who is full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and then they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So in this group of seven, there is someone who has a good reputation, who is full of the Spirit of God, and who is very wise. And his name is Philip. And then if you read just a little bit further in this chapter, we find out that a a harassment starts to take place. And you'll read about Stephen, one of the seven, being pulled out and being um, confronted about what he's doing in this way that he's participating in. And Stephen gives this incredible, powerful testimony, which literally ends in a vision of God the Almighty and Christ in, in the temple room of God. And at that point, the leaders say enough and they lead Stephen out 
and they stone him to death. And it begins what is called this great persecution of the Christians living in Jerusalem. And what ends up happening is there is what's called a diaspora. In my Western way of saying it, I always want to say diaspora. It's pronounced, it's spelled D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A. Diaspora. Pronounced diaspora. What it means is a dispersing, a scattering. The core group of people who were meeting in Jerusalem on a daily basis to look at the Word of God and be taught about what it means to be a Christian now come under an incredible, intense persecution and this diaspora happens. How do I know that this is true from the Bible? If you look at the end of Stephen's execution, you see that all of the people who are stoning Stephen have laid their cloaks at the feet of one whose name is Saul. And Saul, it says, is standing there giving full approval to this. Now, Saul was an up-and-coming young guy in the, in the, in the Jewish world. And, I'll, and then the, the story then transitions to Saul going out with letters of authority from the Sanhedrin to go and kill and destroy this way. So this, this persecution begins and literally it scatters the church. If you look at church history, you will see that, the, the, that um, Thomas, the disciple that was the doubter, he ends up in India. There are some that say that Joseph of Arimathea, who wasn't one of the initial followers, but he became a follower of Christ. Some say he actually ended up with Mary Magdalene up in Ireland and England, bringing the word of God up in that part of the world. We don't have all of the, the travels that they did and where people ended up, but we do know Philip's path because we're given it. And so... Um, let's look at Philip. He first appears in chapter 6, and then he appears again in chapter 8. So Paul, I mean, Stephen is killed, the end of chapter 7. Paul is giving approval in chapter 8, verse 1. And then in verse 8, verse 1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered, they were dispersed. There was this diaspora that took place throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, with the exception of the apostles. Okay? So basically the crowd of Christians went, we got to get out of here, or they're going to kill us too. It says, devout men then buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, and Saul was ravaging the church, literally entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Now those, chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, it says down because Jerusalem is actually on a hill. So geographically, going to Samaria is a downward path. But it's literally north of Jerusalem. Okay? So in my mind, he went up to Samaria. But when they say down to Samaria, that's literally talking, he walked down a hill to where Samaria was located, but he was heading in a northerly direction, okay? So he goes to Samaria, and he begins to proclaim to the people of Samaria, Christ. And the crowds with one accord pay attention to what was being said by Philip, and when they heard him, and then they saw the signs that he did, 
Because the signs that he did, verse 7, are unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, coming out of many who had, had, who had them. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were being healed. So there was much joy in the city. And then it goes on to talk about this guy named Simon. And then it goes on to talk about the, the, the leaders of the apostles hearing about what God is doing through Philip. And they come to bless and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in verse 26... After, every, after all of this hubbub has gone on and the apostles have gone back to Jerusalem, verse 26 of chapter 8, Philip has another storyline, another addition to his storyline. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So if you were, if you were able to turn to a map, Okay, and I don't, unfortunately I don't have a map. I wanted to put one on the screen, but it would have been so crowded and small you wouldn't have been able to see it. So just imagine with me. I'm going to do it from your perspective, okay? Over here is the Mediterranean Sea, okay? Here in this strip of land is the, the, the land of Judea and Samaria, okay? Up here on the coast is Tyre and Sidon. Down here is Jerusalem. Here is the Sea of Galilee the Jordan River, and then uh, the Dead Sea. Up here is Samaria, and down here is Gaza on the coast. Okay? So Philip is up here in Samaria, and the Spirit of God through an angel or some, some manifestation of God says, Philip, I want you to leave Samaria, and I want you to go down to the wilderness area south of Jerusalem on the way towards Gaza. Okay? Now, one of the things you don't necessarily know, and we're not told here, was that this was a major trade route. This was known as the Fertile Crescent. This is where people would come from Babylon and Persia area, down through Israel, down by Gaza, and then all across over to Egypt and then to the African continent. This was a major, major uh, route of travel for all people, not just Jewish people or Samarian, Samaritan people. And so Philip led of God, leaves his place of ministry and goes to this road in the wilderness just following the leading of God. And what happens? He meets somebody. Look at verse 27. He rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to worship to Jerusalem to worship and was now returning seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Okay, well, first of all, this storyline, you have to understand who the eunuch is to understand the story, okay? So although I'm focusing on Philip, I have to give you a little bit of background on this eunuch to make sense for you what all of this and how it all plays out. First of all, what is a eunuch? A eunuch is a human being, a male human being, who has been surgically altered. They have been castrated. Normally that takes place before puberty. Why? Number one, these are high officials in the houses of the kings and they don't want these high officials who have access to the houses of the kings to go messing around in the harem, which is the, the place where the wives and the concubines of the king live. So this person who is entrusted, this guy here, he's a high court official, he's in charge of the treasury, he has access to the whole court. He was 
castrated as a, as a young child before he entered into puberty. And so, literally, his body never experienced the wash of testosterone, which caused, which would have caused him to grow muscular, and to grow facial hair, and to become manly. And the end result is, because he didn't have that wash of testosterone during his pubescence, he ended up soft and round, and smooth-faced, and high-voiced, and it was very evident that he was not a man's man. He couldn't hide the fact that he was a eunuch. Okay, that's a key and important thing in understanding what is going on in his story. Number two, he was a follower of Jehovah. Why? Why would some guy, we assume him to be black, because he lives in what is now Sudan, the Ethiopia of, of the Bible times is what's now Sudan, why would this black guy from Africa want to come to Jerusalem to worship God? Think about back to the time of King Solomon. King Solomon was visited by the queen of Ethiopia, the queen of Sheba. And scholars, it's not said in the scriptures, but scholars sometimes think that the Song of Solomon was a love song that Solomon wrote for the queen of Ethiopia. That they had a romantic liaison. That they didn't actually become husband and wife in the sense that she became part of his harem because she was a queen in her own right. But some people believed that they had a sexual relationship that she ended up carrying a child back with her to Ethiopia. And now we have this black woman who's carrying the child of this of the Jewish king and that child then gets raised to be a Jew and now hundreds if not thousands of years later this Ethiopian eunuch is a practicing Jew that's why he traveled to Jerusalem for worship because what do Jews do when they want to worship God especially at the three high holy times of the year, they, the men are commanded to go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices and to participate in the worship. So this Ethiopian official, high official in the court of the queen, who is a eunuch, goes to Jerusalem because he's Jewish by practice and most likely by birth. But what do we know from the law of Moses about worship in the temple? Nothing imperfect can come into the worship space of the temple. Number one, he was not pure Jew. So that meant he would only be allowed into the court of the Gentiles. Number two, he had been castrated. Therefore, he wasn't even allowed in the court of the Gentiles. So all he was able to do was come to Jerusalem in honor of his faith, and stand basically at the wailing wall and look up onto the Temple Mount going, I wish I could go up there, but I can't. But I at least want to let God know that I love him. I want to at least try to worship to the best of my ability. I can't get close, but I can try. And then this very wealthy man who has most likely an entourage with him is able to procure a very expensive thing. He buys a scroll which has been handwritten with the very word of God on it. 
the book of Isaiah, and he takes it back with him. Back then, not everybody had a Bible on their bookshelf. Very few people had access to the actual written word of God. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, when you read the word of God in the Jewish culture, you read it out loud. So now we have this Jewish by birth Ethiopian eunuch who has been prohibited from actually accessing the very worship space of God, but desires to worship God, who bought for himself his own personal copy of the book of Isaiah, and he's now heading back to the court of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, reading out loud, as is the Jewish tradition, from the scriptures. And who does he meet? Philip, who's acting out of obedience. I have no idea why God called me to leave my home in Samaria and come down to this wilderness place, but I'm doing what I was told. And all of a sudden, I hear this foreign official reading from Isaiah. And what does it say? Verse 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. What that says to me was that that chariot was not barreling down the road at 15 or 20 miles an hour. Okay? It was a leisurely stroll with the horse carrying the chariot because most likely the entourage was walking alongside the chariot. Okay? And most likely the Ethiopian was reading and everybody else was listening. And so he's reading in a voice loud enough for his entourage to hear and that's how Philip was able to hear what was going on. And he walks up under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God And he runs up to the guy and he says, do you understand what you're reading? Now, he doesn't necessarily know the whole history of this black guy that's riding in a chariot on his way down the road to Gaza. He doesn't know that he's necessarily a Jewish person who just tried to worship but wasn't able to worship uh, effectively because of his physical condition. All he knows is that there's this guy on the road reading out loud from the book of Isaiah and the Spirit of God told him to come up and talk to him. So he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And so he invited Philip to join him, to come up into the chariot and sit with him. And it says that the scripture passage that the eunuch was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before his shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch says to Philip, who's this talking about? I mean, what are, is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else, the prophet? And Philip then begins to open his mouth and just tells him the gospel about Jesus, the good news. And as they were going along, it says, verse 36, they came to some water and the eunuch says, well, here's some water. What keeps me from being baptized? And Philip's like, Nothing. Now think about this. What is that saying? It's saying that Philip has communicated the gospel in such a way that this eunuch has come to full faith in Christ as the Messiah and is now asking to be baptized as an outward expression of the salvation experience that he has just entered into. And Philip's like, ain't nothing I can think of to keep her from being baptized. And so they get him baptized. And when they came up out of the water... The Spirit of God said to Philip, okay, time to leave. Now, I've always read this when I was younger, that the eunuch comes out of the water and goes, poof, and goes, where do you go? What happened? He just disappeared. Eh, That's not what the scripture says, but that's how I always pictured it. You know, it's like the eunuch comes up out of the water and goes, 
He was just here a minute ago. He, what, what happened to him? What I think happened was Philip said, see you later. Been good knowing you. He said, well, come on, go with me. No, no, no. God's telling me I got a place else to go. And so he instantly, he, he leaves and goes away. And the man goes on his way rejoicing. Now, what has just happened? A Jew has received the gospel and is now carrying the truth of the gospel along with the written word that he can show and explain to his fellows in Ethiopia. And I wish that I could have found a a resource to point you to, but you can know that history tells us that the work of Philip through the Ethiopian caused the gospel of God to go down to Ethiopia and explode. And there is still Christian churches today that can point back to that interchange between a Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch on that road to Gaza. And how did it happen? It happened because a man who was just doing his job, what God had assigned him to do, he was just a helper in the church. He, was, he wasn't an apostle. His job wasn't to preach the gospel and to be a teacher. He was just a guy who was of good reputation and full of the Spirit of God and um, full of wisdom. And he just did what God told him to do. God told him to go up to Samaria. All of a sudden, people are getting saved. To the point where the church starts noticing and they send on, send envoys from the leadership of the church to make sure this is right. And the Holy Spirit of God pours out blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And Philip is there working and then all of a sudden God says, Hey, I've got something for you to do. I need you to go. Now, I looked at the map. It's close to 100 miles, I think, if I measured correctly, between Samaria and Gaza. So he had to travel a long way following the, the leadership of God. And the timing had to be just right for Philip to intersect this guy after having been rejected at the temple and buying his te- his, te- his scroll of, of the book of Isaiah and be reading at a certain point in the book of Isaiah so that when he walks up at the right moment, it's exactly where he needs to be in the scripture so that Philip can then explain to him about Christ. All of that was orchestrated by the Holy Spirit of God, but it all came about because Philip was carefully listening to the Holy Spirit of God and responding in a timely fashion to what God was asking of him. Now, if I were to continue on, you can go back into chapter 21 and see the last part of Philip's story, which we don't have time this morning to talk about. It's a minor thing, but it just tells us that his family grows up and he has children who are now proclaiming the word of God. So he's been faithful through the years. Okay? You can read that for yourself. I want to focus on this thing with with the eunuch. What does any of this have to do with this image that God gave me of the diorama of Gettysburg with all of the little campfires? And all of the people gathered around the campfires with their faces illuminated, reading the word of God, battle hymn of Republic. I can see him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They've built him an altar in the evening dues and dance. Um, I can hear the word of God being spoken, blah, 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 studied by the, by the dim lights. What does all that have to do with this Philip Ethiopian thing? It's this. As I have meditated since Thursday on what God... Hello, stop talking to me. Um, as I have meditated since Thursday on this image that God burned into my brain, and then this story of Philip and the eunuch, what God has been whispering to me the entire time is, I have declared long ago that this congregation is going to grow. I had told you, Bob, that through the years, 
If you will be faithful to do what I tell you, to, to lay the foundation, to get everything ready, I will bring about this incredible outpouring and there will be this new life that will string up. And literally, the, the number, the magic number that God put in my head in 2004 was 150 fully devoted followers. And then God said to me a number of years ago, but just a few years back, it doesn't necessarily have to be 150 in this room. It can be three groups of 50 that meet in various places, but all are a part of this ministry of this church. And then what God said to me over this last three days was, and it is not something that your church is going to do. It is not some big program there or outreach that you're going to put on. It is each one of the people of God, each household that is represented in this room right now, intentionally reading my word, listening to my spirit, and faithfully being obedient in a timely manner to what I'm asking of them so that I can make divine connections in their life. So that at the moment that is perfect, they will hear an opportunity for them to come alongside one of their friends or neighbors or even a stranger and say, would you like someone to explain to you what it is that you've come across in that scripture passage or in that television show you just saw or what you just heard on the radio or what you just saw on the internet? And they'll say, well, I wish I knew somebody, but I don't go to church. And you can say, I'm not a pastor. I'm just somebody that goes to church and I try to listen to God, but I'd be happy to sit down with you and try to sort it out. And then God will do the saving. And God will do the, the implanting of the word in the heart and mind and soul of that individual. And then you may not ever see them again. But the word of God will be carried in the heart of this new believer to some incredible work of God that has a direct tie to the Two Rivers Community Church of the Nazarene in Fairbanks, Alaska. Not anything we could have planned, not anything we could have orchestrated, but God himself manifested by his power and your faithfulness. My job in Acts chapter 6, is to preach the word. My job is to study. My job is to empower you. Ephesians chapter 4 says, my job is to equip the saints for the service for which they're called. Some are called to be evangelists. Some are called to be teachers. Some are called to be, some are called to be, some are called to be. And your job is to serve in whatever role God is calling you to. You don't have to be specially trained. You don't have to be ordained. You just simply have to be a willing servant who is willing to be raised up as God sees fit for whatever it is that God has for you. But the reality is you have to know the word of God well enough to be able to communicate it well enough when the opportunity presents itself. You have to recognize the voice of God well enough to know when God is indeed calling you out. So there are disciplines that you need to bring into your own life right now, long before God is going to break out in a powerful way, because he needs you to be ready for the moment when he calls you forth. And so the challenge for you, not for me, 
The challenge for you as the helpers, the deacons, the laity of this congregation is you need to be faithfully reading the word of God on a regular basis. You need to be faithfully joining one with each other to study the word of God and to challenge each other and say, I don't fully understand this. Can you help me? Because I asked the pastor and he hasn't got a clue. The reality is, is that that's what you need to be doing. I mean, my wife and I have been here 16 years. We have tried to model for you what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. And if you haven't got it by now, I don't know if you're going to ever get it. But the reality is, as I sat and reflected this uh, over these last three days, I was, and I'm not going to name them because it wouldn't be appropriate, but I was like, God, you are doing this already. There are people in this congregation that you've already called out to do stuff, and they're walking the path that you've called them to do, and I'm excited about what you're going to do through them. But at the same time, God, there are, there are some who are just sitting on their hands. There's some who are not in any way actively engaged in any form or fashion of building themselves up spiritually or helping to spread the word of God to their community. And Father, I don't know what to do about that either. That's up to you. And the Lord literally said, the watch fires, Bob. The watch fires. Just keep proclaiming to them the watch fires. I'll do the work. I'll do the calling. I'll do the focusing. I'll help them to grow. Just help, just help them to understand all they have to do is build the altar and I'll meet them there. Build the altar. Read the word. Pray. Join together around the watch fire. Not just you alone, but you iron sharpening iron with two or three other believers. Seeking the will of God and being ready for whatever he lays out before you. And I guarantee you, I may not live to see it, but I guarantee you, God is going to break out in a powerful and mighty way if you will be faithful to listen to him and to act when he calls on it. Evidence is right here in the word of God with the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And I'm going to call out one human being right now. I'm not going to say your name, but I'm going to look right at you. You have an incredible opportunity as people sit in your chair for 30 to 40 minutes every single day. You have opportunity at least four or five times a day to speak truth into people's lives. And I'm not saying you are, and I'm not saying you're not, but I'm saying God has positioned you in this community to be a lighthouse to the, to the people in this community. And you need to be prayerful about how you're doing your job. And every single one of you. Another one, access to young lives who are trying to decide how they want to live their life forever. You have the opportunity to speak truth to them. I have another one right here who is physically frail at this point, but she knows how to pray. And she knows how to minister to her neighbors by saying, I'll pray for you and I'll meet the needs. I have another one who knows how to go to the laundromat and be open and not afraid to walk up to somebody and say, can I help you fold that? And look for opportunities. I have another one that I saw just this week that has a gifting among children and is very gifted musically. And is very gifted in intellectual pursuits. I have another one, and I'm pointing to two at this point, who are walking the path that God has laid before them. And I could point and point and point. I'm telling you, we have faithful people who are already walking in the spirit, who are already full of wisdom, who already have good repute. And God is using you. And you just need to continue to do that walk. You need to continue to look for ways to be used of God. And watch as he explodes the campfires into bonfires 
into wildfires and scorches the evil out and allows for the new growth. You've seen what wildfires do. Let's pray.